to a Hope 103.2 podcast. Last time, I began to reflect on the wonderful words of Matthew 5, 14-16, where Jesus says to his disciples that they are going to be the light of the world. They can bring the world to worship God through the power of their actions in the world. It says, You are the light of the world. Let your light shine before men that they may see your good deeds and praise your Father in heaven. I want to highlight something tonight that is invisible in the English translation, but perfectly clear in the Greek text of Matthew 5, 14 to 16. Now, I know this may sound a little nerdy, but a bit of Greek never did anyone any harm. My point has to do with the frustrating English word, you. In English, we have no way of distinguishing between a singular you and a plural you. When I say, I really hope you like this talk, you don't know if I mean you individually or you's listeners in general. Anyway, the you in Matthew 5, 14 to 16 is a plural. We might say use. Now, this might not be very pleasing to the ear, but it's pretty grammatically useful. Matthew 5, 14 literally says, use are the light of the world. Then verse 16 literally says, let the light of use shine before men that they may see the good deeds of use and praise the father of use in heaven. The statement use are the light of the world suggests that Jesus has in mind the company of disciples, the whole collection of disciples rather than believers individually. As good deeds are done by the Christian community, the light shines and others are drawn into the worship of God. I'll talk in the next episode about the gospel-promoting power of individual good deeds, but right now I want to stress that the prophecy of a world-saving light in Isaiah 49.6 is fulfilled as Christ's community is seen to be living out Jesus' teachings, being meek, loving enemies, giving to the needy, and so on. Humanly speaking, no one would have thought it possible to bring the nations to the worship of God through simple good deeds. How on earth could good deeds change a realm as mighty as the Roman Empire, let alone the whole world? But as unlikely as it may have sounded at the time, Jesus' call to be the light of the world was taken very seriously by his first disciples. They devoted themselves to quite heroic acts of godliness. They loved their enemies. They prayed for their persecutors. They cared for the poor wherever they found them. We know that the Jerusalem church set up a large daily food roster for the destitute among them. No fewer than seven Christian leaders were assigned to the management of the program. You can read about it in Acts chapter 6. We know that the Apostle Paul, perhaps the greatest evangelist ever, was utterly devoted to these same kinds of good deeds. In response to a famine that ravaged Palestine between AD 46 and 48, Paul conducted his own decade-long international aid program earmarked for poverty-stricken Palestinians. Wherever he went, he asked the Gentile churches to contribute whatever they could to the poor of Jerusalem. Christian good deeds continued long after the New Testament era. We know, for instance, that by AD 250, the Christian community in Rome was supporting 1,500 destitute people every day. All around the Mediterranean, churches were setting up food programs, hospitals, and orphanages. 
These were available to believers and unbelievers alike. In fact, the influence of Christian good deeds was so great that the 4th century pagan emperor Julian became fearful that Christianity might take over the world by the stealth of good deeds. He wrote to his pagan priests insisting that pagan temples throughout the empire should introduce a welfare system like the one in the Christian churches. Prison visitations, hospitals, hostels, orphanages and poverty relief programs. He wanted to beat the Christians at their own game. Here's a letter he wrote to the pagan high priest of Galatia. The letter is dated 362, the year before his death. Let me read the pagan Emperor Julian. Why do we not observe that it is the Christians' benevolence to strangers, their care for the graves of the dead, and the pretended holiness of their lives that have done most to increase atheism? He calls Christianity atheism because they tell people not to believe in the Greek gods. Anyway, let me continue with the letter. I believe that we ought really and truly to practice every one of these virtues, and it is not enough for you alone to practice them. But so must all the priests in Galatia, without exception. In every city, establish frequent hostels in order that strangers may profit by our benevolence. I do not mean for our own people only, but for others also who are in need of money. I have but now made a plan by which you may be well provided for this. I have given directions that a 175 tons of corn shall be assigned every year for the whole of Galatia and 33,900 litres of wine. I order that one-fifth of this be used for the poor who serve the priests, and the remainder be distributed by us to strangers and beggars. For it is disgraceful that the impious Galileans support not only their own poor, but ours as well. All men see that our people lack aid from us. Needless to say, Julian's program failed. Without a doctrine of grace in Greco-Roman religion, it was very difficult to convince people to love the unlovely. Christians, on the other hand, had a highly developed idea of God's grace. And this was the basis for communities of grace, which sought to do good to all, and so drew many others into the worship of God. Rodney Stark is Professor of Social Sciences at Baylor University in the US. He concludes his analysis of the rise of Christianity with words that bear out this same point. Now, keep in mind, Professor Stark is not a Christian. Therefore, as I conclude this study, I find it necessary to confront what appears to me to be the ultimate factor in the rise of Christianity. The simple phrase, for God so loved the world, would have puzzled an educated pagan. And the notion that the gods care how we treat one another would have been dismissed as patently absurd. This was the moral climate in which Christianity taught that mercy is one of the primary virtues. That a merciful God requires humans to be merciful. This was revolutionary stuff. Indeed, it was the cultural basis for the revitalization of the Roman world, groaning under a host of miseries. Professor Stark has probably underestimated other contributing factors in the expansion of Christianity. For one thing, preaching. Christians not only lived the motto, God so loved the world, they also proclaimed it far and wide. Nevertheless, Stark does helpfully draw attention to an aspect of Christian mission made plain in Matthew 5, 14-16. 
but is sometimes downplayed in the modern church. Good deeds can win the world to the worship of God. Good deeds must never be thought of as a missionary tactic. That's not what I'm saying. I'm not saying it's a means of getting people on side before you hit them with the gospel. Good works have to be done for their own sake, in obedience to the Lord. Good deeds are the essential fruit of the gospel of God's grace. But it's precisely because good deeds are an essential fruit of the gospel that they so powerfully promote the gospel. Although we must never find ourselves doing good simply as a gospel ploy, there can be no question that Jesus expected unbelievers to observe our acts of love and through them to be convinced to worship the source of love. He said, Let your light shine before men that they may see your good deeds and praise your Father in heaven. Hope 103.2 Thanks for listening.